Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 33, we're discussing Excalibur 32, Someone Will Die for This, featuring the return of Chris Claremont for the start of the final story arc on Excalibur, Girl School from Heck. Excalibur number 32 was originally published in December 1990, and the creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Ron Wagner on pencils and inks, Glennis Oliver on colors, Tim Harkins on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Roses are red. All the leaves are And in the business of putting old heads on young shoulders, and all my pupils are the creme de la creme. Give me a girl at an impressionable age, and she is nine for life. I am dedicated to you in my pride. This week's episode is going to talk all about girlhood and boyhood and a dash of Margaret Thatcher with a guest who we booked on the pod for this episode months and months ago, back when we first started the thing. I am so excited to have her and I will introduce her in just a moment. But first, your regular cohort. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I study and teach and write about gender and sexuality and comics and pop culture. And I make BAMP shirts and podcasts in addition (laughs) to this podcast. I co-host another monthly podcast with Andrew from this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I'm always hustling is Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and I have never attended private school or even set foot in one as far as I know, but I did read a bunch of articles on women in prison films in preparation for this episode, which is hopefully <laughs> just as relevant. We'll see. Um, Mav, take it away. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I hate Regina George. Regina George is evil incarnate. <laughs> Regina, oh wait, no, wrong podcast. Um, hi. <laughs> that wasn't fetch at all. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to keep this episode as fetch as possible. Um, I am Christopher Maverick. I am also a scholar of pop culture and comics and stuff like that. Uh, I'm one of the hosts of the podcast Fox Popcast, and I, it is so fetched to be here today. I'm, I, that's that's what it is, and I'm just going to say that the rest of the show, so get used to it. <laughs> Stop trying to make it happen, etc. It's going to happen. <laughs> Andrew, you want to tell the listeners about yourself? Hello, I'm Andrew Demand, comic scholar and just Claremont expert enough that if somebody said to me, hey, should Chris Claremont, with his vast vocabulary of sexual symbolism, author of Excalibur, a series about super thirsty superheroes all squished together, often in their underpants, in a big phallic-shaped building, start telling stories about underage kids at a boarding school? My answer would be no. And yet I kind of love this story arc, and I'm very excited to talk about it, both the good and the bad. I 
I'm also excited to talk about it. And I'm very curious about our different mileage on this storyline. Because we have three episodes on this storyline, which is unusual uh-huh. on this show. So uh-huh. we'll, we'll, we'll make the most of it. Um, we are joined, as I mentioned, by a very special guest in the freshly minted Dr. Charlotte Fabricius. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Dr. Charlotte Fabricius holds a PhD in cultural studies from the University of Southern Denmark. Her dissertation investigated superheroic girlhood in 21st century U.S. superhero comics, applying a feminist critical lens to the representation of girl protagonists and embodied agency. Charlotte has published work on non-normative embodiment in U.S. superhero comics in various venues, as well as a wide range of public scholarship on comics and feminism, most of it for the Danish comics news site Numer Nee. Charlotte's research interests also include contemporary Danish comics artists, particularly those whose work encompasses feminism and representation of women and girls. So obviously, well-situated to talk about this particular issue, which is why we picked it out for you way back when. So I first met Charlotte at the first annual Comics to Studies Society Conference at the University of Illinois, and I knew we were on the same wavelength because you were totally wearing a jumpsuit when I met you at that conference, and hot tip, jumpsuit, absolutely the best thing for summer conferences and absolutely the best thing for travel. Highly recommend. Absolutely. <laughs> you also presented a really fabulous paper about girlhood and comics and Sarah Ahmed and queer lines. I still remember it. It was amazing. I am so excited to be reunited on the air with you in this episode. I want to hear lots about your girlhood research and kind of situate this issue within that. So we'll set up a lot of questions for you about that. And before we get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about your comics origin story and your comics background. So obviously, we know that you know your comics based on your intro but I want to know a little bit about your personal history. So have you been a lifelong comics reader? And if not, if so, when did you start? What kind of things did you originally get into and all of that good stuff? It's sort of a yes and no answer, really, because like a lot of comics readers, I grew up with my dad's collection of comics, which uh, to me and a a lot of people in, in Denmark, which is where I'm situated, meant a lot of mainly like Franco-Belgian stuff and no superheroes at all. Um, so I don't think I'd really read a superhero comic before I was maybe 19 and just about to enter university. But I'd read comics all my life, basically, because I read everything. Yeah, and it's so it's so different too. I mean, it's such a different context than kind of the American context where things are yeah. <laughs> just and different mean- in general. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, um, superhero comics have been available in uh, Denmark for certainly all of my life and and all of my father's life, and a lot of them translated into Danish as well, at least in the the 20th century. But for whatever reason, that wasn't on his radar, and thus it wasn't really on mine until I, yeah, as I said, was entering my 20s and entering university to do a a degree in literature. (laughs) Well, I like that you're sort of like framing this as though you should feel guilty for not reading superhero comics or something. I was like, you definitely shouldn't. That's not something anybody is required to read (laughs) and shouldn't be something you ever feel bad about. Yeah, just given that I ended up devoting four years of my life to the the subject, it is kind of baffling that it's not even been a decade since I really started getting into the genre. (laughs) 
Well, let's talk about that a little bit then. Like when you did get into it, I mean, did you get into it kind of on a fanish level or did you get into it more as like, I need to analyze this thing with the tools at my disposal because there's so much going on here? I mean, both really, because what happened was that my boyfriend at the time was getting into DC Comics in particular at a time where I was doing a gender studies elective and in grasping around for something to write an exam on at the end of that term and having one idea fall through, I sort of picked up Morrison and McKean's Batman Arkham Asylum off of our shelf and went, yeah, that's queer. That'll do. Um, <laughs> did, a, did a paper on that. And that kind of snowballed into me then switching from comparative literature to the study of modern culture for my MA and retaining uh, an interest in feminist critique and gender studies. And then at the same time, having a friend uh, lend me Gail Simone's Batgirl run and being like, hey, you like Batman. I think you'll like this. And it getting to a point where the only obvious choice when I was writing my master's thesis was to uh, do a, a feminist study of Gail Simone's Bad Girl and Chuck Dixon's Nightwing series from the 90s, which is um, yes. a lot. <laughs> I know that you have published on that series in a really excellent piece and that you have sort of an interest in kind of objectification and <laughs> sexy male superheroes and stuff sort of dovetailing with some of my interests. So that's something that is not going to be a huge part of today's issue, probably, but we can certainly talk about it if it comes up. I'm sure we can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> so are you relatively new to kind of like X-Men comics? Because you said like, I mean, obviously your dissertation is focusing primarily on 21st century comics, right? So I was just wondering about your prior familiarity with the X-Universe. Oh, yeah. So confession time, especially with, with a Claremont scholar in the room, as it were, I don't think I've ever read more than maybe a handful of X-Men comics. Again, um, you do not have to. <laughs> <laughs> My familiarity Sorry. with the X-Universe is... <laughs> primarily through growing up in the 90s yeah. around the various uh, animated shows that were coming out and then the um, the various like blockbuster films of the 21st century. So this is not my first X book ever, but one of the first. Okay, no worries. Well, one of the things I would say to pump you up a little bit more is that what's really valuable to me about the work that you do, which I've, you know, I've attended a number of conference papers of yours as well, is that I can see how good you are at sort of discussing the formal properties of comics and sort of bringing that into your analysis of superhero comics, which is something that's often missing from kind of analysis of superhero comics, in part because comic scholarship is so siloed, you know, you have people that do everything that's not superhero comics, and then you have the people <laughs> doing superhero comics, and never the two shall meet, right? So so I'm really looking forward to kind of having a conversation with you today about sort of styles of girlhood in comics and sort of how we can think about those kind of things in a comic like this, which does have a style that's different than some of the issues that we've encountered before. And we can talk about whether that serves it or not and some of these interesting things. But anyway, let's get back to that after we do the issue summary and we'll talk more specifically about girlhood and some of your research. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, A pluses all around. But as usual, let's review today's lesson with with a plot summary. Outside the Houses of Parliament, Excalibur attacks and swiftly defeats a group of <sighs> Nazis. But this isn't the Excalibur <laughs> we're used to. Everyone is male presenting, with the exception of Captain Britain, who is very female presenting. For the record, Shadowcat is now Dark Tiger, Phoenix is Arizona, and Megan is Morgan. A disappointing name, perhaps, compared to the others. Nightcrawler is just Nightcrawler. They hand the Nazis over to the police, then return to the lighthouse, where they share a raucous dormitory supervised by Captain Britain, who brings them hot cocoa 
Coco and read Summer Story, specifically A Tale of Two Cities. But it's all a dream, and the woman dreaming the dream is Margaret Thatcher, and she's in the office of a therapist who is actually Mesmero. This is a lot of zaniness, and we haven't even gotten to St. Cyril's School for Girls yet, so let's go there. At St. Cyril's, Kitty is introduced to her new headmistress, Miss Rutherford, who has a stuffy demeanor but welcomes Kitty with a lingering kiss on the cheek. When Kitty goes to check out her room, she finds it's been ransacked. The blonde ringleader, Phoebe Huntsman, is even wearing Kitty's precious fringe leather jacket. When another girl starts to read aloud from an entry in Kitty's diary about Peter Rasputin, a physical fight breaks out, wherein Kitty realizes that within the grounds of St. Cyril's, she's all too solid. Her phasing powers have gone kaput. Miss Rutherford soon arrives to break up the fight. The other girls are sent to their rooms, while Kitty is forced to write out 1,000 lines, multiple times until she gets it right. Meanwhile, at the National Gallery in London, Excalibur catch a vixen and her gang trying to break into the museum. They easily handle Vixen's gang, but lose the crime boss down an alley when Vixen transforms into Nigel Frobisher. Back at St. Cyril's, Kitty continues having a rough week. She's subject to pranks, and no one will sit with her at lunch. One night, she sneaks out, but in the process, overhears Miss Rutherford on the phone and discovers that the school is on the verge of financial ruin. She continues sneaking out anyway, discovering her powers return once she leaves the school grounds. She calls Courtney Ross, aka Saturnine, but hangs up, vowing to stick it out. The next day, she sticks it out, literally, triumphing in goal during a very physical game of field hockey. Kitty smashes Huntsman in the face with a ball and takes her jacket back. From a distance, Satter Courtney watches, impressed. Finally, in Mesmero's house in London, he's woken up by two gleaming yellow robots who demand to use his influence over Thatcher to the advantage of their unnamed master. Mesmero refuses until he's told refusing isn't an option, so he agrees while promising in a thought bubble to worm his way out of it. Okay, so that was a lot of plot summary, but in my defense, this issue has a lot of setup for like the next two, so I had to get some of that out of the way. But as usual, I am tired of talking, so I'm going to come to you, Charlotte. Guest privilege, first impressions of this issue, stuff you want to get off your chest right away, stuff you're particularly anxious to discuss. Well, first of all, because I have been listening along with you guys, I came into yeah. this expecting shenanigans, and I was not disappointed. Um, <laughs> this all, like, despite my lack of direct familiarity with the title, seems very on brand. Also, just like a, a side note, it's been a while since I read a team book or something that was pre-2000 due to focusing only on solo titles from the year 2000 onwards for my dissertation. So that was both fun and a lot at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I'll be trying to get this discussion back to Kitty at any at any point I uh, can. But also, it's it's interesting to me what happens in the sort of extreme centering of this very specific story of the girls' school, and then we keep getting pulled out of it to go like through shenanigans with the rest. Maybe this is just me, like not having read a team book in a while, but I was just left with a uh, oh wow, this is a lot. <laughs> That is fair. I don't think you're wrong. It is paced very weirdly. I, you know, I obviously, if you listen to the show, I have been reading along the entire time. <laughs> and even for a, even for a team book, you are correct. There is, whereas the last several issues haven't had much kitty in them at all. Obviously, this one is very much Kitty, and it does seem kind of off-putting because the rest of the team is sort of rammed in there, and let's just get through all this Excalibur stuff as quickly as possible so that we can get back to the Kitty stuff. Not just this one. This issue and the next two have a definite pacing problem. I think that's fair. Yeah, and it's weird because those sequences are interesting visually, but I kept being like, just like, hey, tell me what happens at school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, you fight, it's weird, whatever. Like, get me back. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, 
I want to talk about the possible connections between the gender-swapped Excalibur team at the beginning and de-aged Excalibur team at the... Well, at least gender-swapped. I feel like Nightcrawler is supposed to be a teenager, and it's kind of <laughs> unclear because of the art, but uh, I want to talk about yeah. whether there's a connection between that and the other story. I, I don't know. My impression of Girl School from Heck, which I've reread all of now, you know, as we're recording this first thing, I've now read the entire thing for the first time in a few years, and... I will say I've liked it better than I used to. Um, yeah, particularly, same. I've I've never read all of Excalibur. You know, like we're thirty three issues in, and it's been for me thirty three weeks instead of three years, which is what it was the first time. And I've never really binged it. I just kind of go and revisit it every once in a while. And so I don't hate this. I, I want to make that clear. It's weird for me because I don't feel like I feel like I'm supposed to see more connection than i do it feels very off and it doesn't feel connected the way i think claremont wants it to feel connected because it feels like it should be more cross time capery and it's not we're out of the cross time caper and he hasn't written the last couple of issues so it feels disjointed from the rest of the plot it just feels weird to me in a way that doesn't feel like it's doing anything thematic the way i think it's supposed to and the way it might have felt if you know if this had been part seven of a 12 part arc instead of part one of a three part arc can i try to defend it sure i really like it i okay. i agree completely i think you're absolutely right it is disconnected uh it's just there to establish the premise of mesmero operating in the background right amongst mm -hmm. powerful people but what it what it is to me is a satirical send-up psychoanalysis of margaret thatcher and yeah. the idea that she would view this fantasy specifically the way it appeals to her perception of herself as an anti-fascist even though she's not that uh, or not as much of that <laughs> as she wanted to be uh sure. and the way that like her, she's so um maternalistic uh and powerful and and this this beloved symbol of authority and the british flag all over her and all that kind of stuff like to me this is hilarious it, it's an indictment of thatcherism the same way that v for vendetta is so i like it on its own as like i agree with you it doesn't really connect but i was giggling a lot while reading this as margaret thatcher's fantasy I thought it was pretty pretty apt and incisive even. Yeah, did you want to add to that, Charlotte? Because I know you said you had a theory a moment ago. Yeah, it's just it it sets up the headmistress of Kitty's school in a really interesting way, mm, having yeah. established a different woman leader with more or less nefarious intents and purposes in a really interesting way. And I think even like with the, the connection that happens visually as, as well as by association between the sort of feminized version of Captain Britain to Miss Rutherford via Thatcher is very interesting hmm. and does some interesting things to set up a sort of uncanny ness around miss is it miss rutherford is that her name yeah the headmistress. Yeah. yeah yeah the way that these like women leaders are positioned in ways that make us go like what is their what is their view of superheroes and what they should and shouldn't be doing i think can excuse yeah it. yeah that makes that makes sense to me I, I mean on the even more basic thematic level and we have everybody gender swapped except for nightcrawler basically which that confused me the first time i read it when i was rereading it this time and i saw the thatcher thing i understood it but the first time 
I read it, that element of it confused me. And I even because the art's a little bit unclear, I was like actually not sure whether I was supposed to read him as gender swapped or not. But I mean, setting up that equivalency of them being sort of in a dormitory and everything, and then having Kitty in that same space. So yeah, I just for me, it's like it's reaching for something and the connection. I love what Charlotte's bringing to it, and I love what Andrew's bringing to it. I sort of wish it was brought together a little bit better thematically yeah. in the sense that this is just kind of like a one-off joke and we don't have it sort of woven throughout the narrative mm-hmm. but I mean I don't know that's like maybe a very subjective complaint because I do think it's an effective opening and that first page like where you have the first page of like you know the Nazi you know like oh great this again but then the next page when you flip it and you have <laughs> Nightcrawler in the foreground with his like foot on the guy's throat and then all of these gender swapped characters that's a very effective kind of opening splash page I do think it's sort of definitely intrigues you to read more at the very least it does and i think i'm i think i'm exactly the same place as you i like i it gets you immediately interested in a way better than the nazis have before the problem is i mean okay minor spoilers i'm gonna spend the next three issues waiting for this to come back and it yeah, doesn't yeah, I know. <laughs> which is weird you know that's the odd thing it, it it's it just it feels weird because of that disconnect i mean it's funny because i know who Ma- margaret thatcher is right but like in the reading of this book as a cohesive narrative unto itself, I feel lost a little. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I want to talk about sort of girlhood and comics and some of the ways that we can read this within sort of the context of that type of scholarship and those kind of themes. And I think maybe we can come back to this because I want to obviously talk about queer coding and queer themes in this comic book. And that might be a way to kind of get us there. Mm -hmm. So this question is, of course, going to be for you, Charlotte. Um, So we've talked about children's comics before on the podcast, um, particularly when we talked with Gwen about Mojo Mayhem in that episode. Um, and we've certainly talked about Kitty and Rachel's teenagerness like a little bit before, but we haven't really talked specifically about girlhood and like what we, what we mean when we talk about girlhood. And obviously, since this is one of your research interests, we want to make the most of your expertise on that topic. So your research combines girlhood studies with comic studies. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what's particularly important or interesting to you about combining those things? Like, what do we mean when we talk about girlhood? What does it mean to study girlhood and what is valuable about combining that with the study of comics those are huge questions charlotte so answer that as lengthily or as briefly as you would like well um to take a stab at it i mean obviously girlhood (laughs) studies is a vast field only a subset of it is concerned with cultural representations and an even Mm -hmm. smaller subset of that is is concerned with representations in comics but in general the girl child or the idea of feminine adolescence is a sign of immense anxieties, right? Uh, About gender, about sexuality, about a whole host of other things that sort of position girls in relation to the world, in relation to patriarchy, in relation to other subjects under capitalism. And that latter thing is, is especially important, right? Because what historians of girlhood have shown is that this idea of girlhood as an entity, as as not just childhood, but a specifically feminine-coded um, identity that you have for a duration of your life and then grow out of, is concurrent with the rise of commodity culture. And that's mm both results in things being marketed to girls but also of course the girl becoming a commodity and becoming something marketable and a lot of that as as you guys as, as comic scholars would of course know is that um, a lot of that is concurrent also with the rise of comics 
right? And there's some brilliant work out there on on the importance of children as both commodified and consumers and how that relates to the rise in various comics forms, superhero comics just being one of them. So things are all tied together, right? These anxieties about childhood and girl childhood in particular and teenage girlhood even sort of folds into that. So to me, what became obvious to me when I was researching Gail Simone's Batgirl title for my master's thesis was that, of course, in that run, Barbara Gordon is a young woman. She's very much an adult with adult problems. And yet here she is still being called Batgirl. And the more I decided to sort of hyper-focus on that, the more I realized that there was some re- something really interesting going on with how the superhero genre negotiates girlhood and what that comes to mean and what kind of bodies that set of cultural ideas and anxieties sticks to and the ways that that becomes really spectacularly visualized in something like superhero comics. Oh, well, can we talk about that a little bit more? I mean, what were some of the kind of conclusions that you ended up drawing, like about some of those questions? Again, I know this is one of those horrible questions. It's like, tell me your whole 250 page dissertation (laughs) in two minutes, please. And I'm very aware that you're completely unable to do that. But I mean, is there anything sort of particularly interesting that you would like to mention about it, like things that particularly stood out to you or that you found the most fascinating or that surprised you as you were doing that research? Absolutely. And I guess I can sort of hang it on Kitty and a thing that you guys have been mentioning frequently. And and I think with good reason is this whole discrepancy around Kitty's age and how old she's supposed to be and the fact that it's confusing that she seems to, what is it, turn 15 twice or 16? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Possibly three times, but yeah. Yeah. And like, to me, that makes perfect sense because that's exactly how girlhood works in the superhero Mm -hmm. genre is that the way that I sort of think about it is that girlhood lingers around young feminine coded superhero bodies and that this extended girlhood wherein girls aren't really allowed to but also they're not expected to necessarily grow into women and sort of leave girlhood behind is this space of restriction obviously but also of possibility right that the the sort of pre-stage of of not being tied down fully to reproductive femininity and and all the other trappings that we would sort of associate with womanhood becomes this space where where girls can be within within limits but still be sort of a bit more unruly or or sort of explore this space of possibility that is not just the space of the teenager which which you guys have discussed previously but within this whole framework of the expectations that we place on bodies that we assume to be feminine or associated with the feminine what i sort of saw was that supergirls and I mean, I've, I've looked at them mainly in the 21st century context, but there's some really, really spectacular work by uh, Dr. Olivia Hicks, who's looked at it in uh, the sort of 40s through the 60s, is that superheroic girlhood becomes this really contested space with a lot of possibility of pushing back against sort of normative strictures of patriarchy, of violence, of race, which I guess we'll, we'll get to talking about a little bit more as we discuss empire and the girls' school as a structure, but that this sort of this paradox of having grown women be called girls is really emblematic of what can happen around a character like Kitty Pride. Yeah, I mean, I like a bunch of the stuff that you're touching on there, where it's sort of, it's a contested space because there's a great deal of power in girlhood, right? It seems mm. like something that you're getting at in terms of it being very flexible and mobile, which is certainly something that we've talked about with Kitty Pride before. I mean, even with her phasing powers, and when we talked about that with Margaret Galvin, and we talked about 
uh, with Stephanie Burt, the ways that she passes through boundaries and can queer boundaries and exceed boundaries, like both because of some of the intersectional identities she has, but also through the metaphor of her superpowers, right? And just there's a lot of interesting stuff to say about her in the space of this girl's school in terms of, I mean, one of the things that Stephanie said in that episode was like, is Kitty always condemned to be either the teacher or the student? And even the parallels that are being drawn here with Miss Rutherford and the ways that Kitty disrupts this space. I don't know. I'm just sort of throwing stuff out there because there's so many things that I think we could discuss. I'm not sure which are the things that are going to be most interesting to to discuss. I'll, I'll come back to you actually first, Charlotte. Like in terms of your research on girlhood, what would you make of this comic? Like, did you find that this was an interesting kind of depiction of girlhood in comics? Were there sort of immediate sort of problems that stood out to you? Were there immediate points of interest that stood out to you? I mean, all of the above. I mean, the reason I I pitched myself for this issue specifically was because I saw the phrasing that went something along the lines of Kitty is sent to an all-girls private school. (laughs) And as uh, someone who has, albeit briefly, attended a private all-girls school, not in the UK, in Australia, and only for a year, but still, I have have lived that, uniforms and all. That was uh, something that was very interesting to me to see how that got represented in a superhero comic. So I definitely think that also in terms of how Kitty is drawn in this style is really interesting in terms of these uncertainties of what kind of body the label of girl is and isn't applied to and what it attaches to in the genre. Because there are some of these images where if you took them out of context, you would not think of positing this character as a teenager, let alone a young girl. I definitely think that there's a lot here to to talk about in terms of, of girlhood, especially with Kitty being sort of posited as the main protagonist of the main storyline here. I mean, other thoughts from sort of Mav or Andrew, I mean, it's sort of weird figuring out how to structure these episodes because I know we're going to end up kind of asking a lot of the same questions again and again but in terms of this being effectively kind of the climax of like Kitty Pride's story I mean how does this relate to Kitty Pride specifically as a character maybe as a way to kind of get at some of the specifics of what we have going on here well I think maybe the first place we could go is just to connect it further to um, again Stephanie's idea of um, transgressing boundaries because this mm-hmm. is a very British genre we're in we're in the school days genre created by Tom Brown's school days in the 1800s which is this very bold boyhood focused genre so yeah. kitty is participating in a traditional genre that's that's mostly about male adolescence uh and like like that's structurally it's note for note everything about the school day genre is here and yeah. if anyone doesn't know this genre it's harry potter by the way it's, yeah does, does the exact same thing but then at the same go time she's also school the... in the in, go away to boarding school encounter a bully um yep. meet some friends and turns and, out like, the headmaster loves over. you after all yep. yeah yes and you that's... um excel socially through sports is another big yes. piece of it mm-hmm. but anyway so so you've got that going for you, but then you've also got um, her being an American participating in this British genre, which is another reason why I like the Margaret Thatcher introduction as sort of signaling we're going to be doing something very British this week. Um, so, so, so I think that works. <laughs> Um, but then you've also got that that other sort of counter discourse in play. And I think Anna's leading us towards talking about this, where the girls boarding school genre is a heavily sexualized genre. So there's this now tremendous sort of discursive competition between a story of self-discovery, a building's Roman, uh, and this um, very objectifying misogynistic genre. And I would argue you're really going to see that conflict in the way that Kitty is written versus how she is drawn. Uh, exactly as we've just talked about, because I don't think those two things are 
are aligning here. And I'm finding it really kind of breaking the narrative immersion, the ways that Kitty is sexualized. Yeah, that is interesting because I actually found her less sexualized than she sometimes is, but that's such a weird subjective gaze thing. So it's interesting. (laughs) I have weird takes on this. Okay, so... (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this this is Ron Wagner's art. He is... At this point in his career drawing, I think G.I. Joe, he was doing Nth Man, which we talked about a few issues ago. Mm-hmm. This is, or at least he's the penciler and inker, but he is very definitely, if you if you look up other work of his, he's not doing his regular style. He is softening it and oddly aging it in a way. Like, he is drawing in a way, this doesn't look like G.I. Joe, which again, he's drawing at this era. This looks like he's trying to draw a at this point 30 or 40 year old comic he's trying to do this this throwback thing and i like i think he thinks he's trying to put kitty in sexualized situations while drawing her less sexually than he normally would draw his characters is it coming across i don't know but i but if you look at it if you look at his work on gi joe he is not being as gazy as i expect him to be but it's weird because he's intentionally and i know anna wants to talk about this I think he's trying to draw this parallel between I agree with Andrea that it wants it wants to be a school days book it wants to be a building for mine but I think he's intentionally trying to draw the women in prison conclusion and basically saying all of these teen girl stories which are big at this time you know you you do have you do have a world where we've done you know we haven't had mean girls despite my, my fetch jokes at the beginning but we have had Heathers already we have had the entire world of Porky's and in the in those related teen exploitation films of the 80s and i think he is trying to do a women in prison films and high school exploitation films are the same thing statement like that's what it feels like it feels very intentional with me especially and you know we'll talk about more about it next issue um when there's a lot of lingerie shots but in this issue even there's a lot of butt shots but they're slender thin lithe high school bodies that are not womanly the way he at least not the way wagner usually draws women I disagree. <laughs> really? Yeah. I know I interpret the visuals differently, but no, I, I've, I've said my piece. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. Charlotte's take. I thought it was interesting because up until the hockey scene, there was a point where I was almost like, has this guy like read girls' school comic stories in like British girls' comics from the 50s? Because that, of course, is like an established subgenre of, of exactly what Andrew was talking about, right? And which, of course, had a, had a very explicitly didactic focus and then a whole lot of queer subtext. And that sort of tracked for me for a while. And then we get to the the super violent hockey scene with the very weirdly positioned, like, cut open knee thing. I had to uh, do a double take of that image because I was like, is that? No, that's her knee. Um, <laughs> but like, it, it, it took a turn there. But up until yeah, that Fred point had Burton been more that. sort of ambiguously like... Oh yeah, like we, we this is the girl school story and the sort of the school as the complete world that is is trying to teach this young girl protagonist to be a a proper uh, reproductive citizen of the cis heteropatriarchy and uh, meanwhile lesbianism abounds. But mm-hmm. you know, there is there was a break at some point involving sticks and balls. Yes. 
<laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I'm not even sure like what angle I kind of want to approach us kind of unpacking the subtext stuff because there's just a lot of questions around how to read that because I don't want to neglect anybody's gaze. And I think the thing that we're going to end up doing by having, you know, three episodes to talk about this is that we are going to bring different gazes <laughs> yeah. on this, yeah. you know, because we are going to be approaching this, you know, from different affinities and everything. And I think each episode will end up being kind of different that way. But it's interesting right away, like the way that we're interpreting the artwork differently. And then when we talk about something like the exploitation kind of aspects of this, you know, I brought up women in prison films just because that's a genre that I'm like a little bit more familiar with. And a lot of those hallmarks are kind of present here. Like it is very similar to the school days like thing, except for, you know, obviously with sexualized women in the prison context. So certain stock characters are present in women in prison films, Um, usually an evil sadistic headmistress. um, And the other big stock character that's present is kind of the stereotypical prison lesbian who seduces or tortures our innocent heroine who is sent to prison and I was wondering how much of that to bring to the Phoebe Kitty relationship I don't think it ends up being as as simple or quite as exploitative as some of the most famous sort of women in prison movies and yet her name is Phoebe Huntsman which like attaches a certain sort of phallic meaning to that character and certainly the ways that Phoebe is aggressive with Kitty sort of places her in that role certainly the sticks and balls metaphor places her in that role it sort of becomes a a phallic contest between them effectively right I mean Mm -hmm. symbolically right so all of those things are kind of happening here but anyway the thing about gaze is that I just wanted to emphasize because again we're going to be coming back to that if we have any listeners that are sort of like worried that we're neglecting certain gazes and stuff because as much as sort of women in prison films in that exploitation context prioritized a male gaze it's certainly open to other gazes as well right and I think that that's sort of important to keep considering as we're sort of unpacking this artwork like we can say that it's male gazy and sexualized and everything but there's certainly a number of sort of points of entry here depending on sort of what your attraction to this space might be and so that's like hard to talk about because there are multiple possibilities going on here and I I think what is interesting and frustrating about this issue is that there's almost so many kind of possibilities kind of smashed together here and a lot of genre bending and mixing and gender play that I have a hard time getting a beat on it except to raise all the different possibilities if that makes any sense like I don't think I could make a succinct argument about what this comic is doing but I could make a list of the things that it might be doing (laughs) it doesn't dwell on any of them for very long either it jumps back and so Phil sort of like Charlotte does it goes from trying to do this throwback 50s comic into what to me reads like like an 80s women in prison like that the hockey the field hockey game at the end is very violent compared to the pro i mean very physically and aggressively masculinely violent compared to the headmistress trying to break you by making you write you know i am a good girl this is a good school a million times it i don't know it, it just feels there's there's a lot of context shifts and knowing where the next two issues go it doesn't slow down <laughs> it, it continues to do that well can i put it back to you charlotte about kind of some of the queer context stuff in what senses did you kind of read that into it like what scenes stood out to you in that respect or what dynamics stood out to you in that respect well I mean it it started with the cover really which has Kitty absolutely surrounded by women Mm -hmm. and but in an incredibly sinister way like it does not look like the setup for a good time right Mm -hmm. um and it in fact sort of I you know this is not my primary area of, of expertise but someone like Dr. Julia Rand has talked about the, the importance um, um, 
the sort of the horror genre in girls comics and sort of the gothic and a, a lot of the material that she's drawn there sort of visually really resembles this cover at least I see a lot of echoes in, with like girls gothic I don't usually tease upcoming guests but Julia is joining us for <laughs> the third part of the story <laughs> so it's interesting that you mentioned her she will certainly have things that, to say about it but anyway yeah please sounds, continue Charlotte yeah that sounds right on the money so I guess that from the start we set up this world that is ostensibly an all woman space but with a still very sort of heavily patriarchal and imperial framing and that we know right off the bat that Kitty's relationship to these women and girls is going to be antagonistic and is going to be one of her positioning herself against and in relation to these really violent structures of gender and empire and sort of the disciplinary state right um i'm thinking especially of that scene in uh miss rutherford's office that's like bordered by these really heavy i don't know whether they're supposed to be columns or curtains or both but it's like super dark and very oppressive and frames them and again this like very gothic sensibility yeah yeah for sure i mean i think that's where i was sort of coming out with some of the prison stuff right that way that she's sort of trapped in the school and her losing her powers like sort of resonates that but that as well anyway please continue charlotte yeah well exactly and then there's that kiss which just confused me for the (laughs) longest time because kitty's reaction shot like the reaction shot of kitty has her touching her cheek but the way that it's drawn in the panel itself i at least couldn't completely deduce where miss rutherford's lips were and i spent an uncomfortably long time trying to sort of parse out what's what's going on with the artwork there and sort of ended up i think going well it's probably very deliberately ambiguous but it's setting up this sort of occasionally drawing out the subtext in ways that mostly just made me feel really uncomfortable to be honest Mm. yeah i mean the other one that you know i mean maps are ever going to get more lingerie in the in the next issue but certainly there's the scene where they prank her by presumably turning the shower into cold water and we get a shot of kitty naked in the foreground with the girls watching her in the background yeah um, yeah, the cover is really interesting. I was looking at it as you were describing it, Charlotte, and it's definitely really, so we have the Phoebe figure, her face sort of large in the background, you know, looking quite threatening and intimidating. We can tell it's Phoebe because she has that iconic headband and that sort of widow's peak hair, right? <laughs> and then, but yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about all the different representations of femininity or femaleness. Those things are kind of bound up together here that are represented here and the different ways that they're presented as threats and like how uncomfortable Kitty looks and how sort of ele- out of her element she looks so you have almost like a sexualized threat in phoebe kind of looking over the entire scene but then you have this female presenting captain britain as well which is sort of a different representation of femininity or femaleness that is also threatening to the extent that it's supposed to be you know a surprising image because we're expecting to see brian and this isn't brian but then also mm-hmm. just the hyper sexualization of that figure you know i mean the heels and the little feet those are definitely you know sexy boots right and the different ways that this uniform presents on this body versus the way it presents on Brian's body and sort of the lipstick and sort of the very adultness of that image. I don't know. There's a lot going on there. And then the like teenage boy versions of Excalibur kind of cowering in the background behind the female presenting Captain Britain figure. There's a lot to parse on that cover. And it's not the kind of thing that is conveying a certain explicit message, but I think saying that it's conveying a lot of conflicting and sort of like view 
use is a good way of putting it, but that's sort of one of the ways that I struggle with how to describe this comic as a singular thing because it is not a singular thing. I kind of like the cover in terms of, like I agree with everything you said, like nothing, nothing you said strikes me as something I would disagree with. Um, I like the cover as establishing the sort of panoptic theme, the mm. idea of Kitty is going to be gazed at by her peer group and specifically female peer group in a way that she hasn't been since she joined the X-Men. And, you know, that's that's going to be your, your your main antagonism here. And I think that that's played through as a theme throughout the entire arc really nicely. Uh, I, we talked about it before, but I really like the idea that Kitty is someone who is so hyper capable uh, at everything, but she is poorly socialized as a result of being... <laughs> part of this child paramilitary group for the last few years well maybe a question would be like what do we think she's kind of being socialized into through this story right because charlotte raised the possibility that she is being situated in opposition to these girls at the school and kind of being situated into a more proper more heterosexual whatever girlhood and yet she's being sent here by satter courtney for reasons that will remain unclear and then <laughs> you think about the kiss with miss rutherford and there's kind of like a mentorship element to that so i'm just curious about the question of like what is kitty supposed to be being socialized into at this school well this is actually something i love because i think she's supposed to be socialized i mean it's obviously a feminine space so it's supposed to be about um let's say like refeminizing kitty which is something courtney would absolutely or sadder courtney would absolutely try to do but i love that the story has kitty push back against that and negotiate her own identity um, mm. primarily through violence which i find just yeah. delightful every time so i think there's a lot happening there exactly as you said anyway charlotte i interrupted you like a little while ago go ahead if you would like well it fits perfectly here because i i agree completely with you andrew and that there's something about her embodiment that really speaks to that as well like the fact that her being solid really becomes a problem here right and makes yeah. her vulnerable that the sort of the fact that she can't escape from the corporeal reality of who she is i think is extremely important in that sense and it sort of gets echoed through the visuals and how her body is is drawn and how it's positioned in panels often sort of isolated but also sort of bumping up against panel borders even whether it's to demonstrate her solidity or just more metaphorically hint at that i think that that tracks really well with the um with the reading you're suggesting there i mean i wonder if sort of the heavy shadow and the heavy line here as well because i mean you brought up the gothic elements and that's certainly part of that right i like want to talk more about like mm -hmm. gender bending and stuff but i'm not sure like how to it just it doesn't do as much of it as i remembered but i rem remembered the thatcher dream section being way longer than it actually is <laughs> and like it's it, and like more i mean it, it is the cover but it is you know it's a throwaway and that's and since yeah. it doesn't and i think maybe the reason i remember that remember it that way is because it took me three months to read it the first time and i spent three months waiting for it to come back and it doesn't mm -hmm. you know so like any gender bending is you know coding of teen girls in a all feminine space therefore you know some take more masculine you know, some phoebe takes more masculine roles you know at least traditionally she's the bully right but like i really did remember there being much more to the look here's the boy megan here's the girl um captain britain you know like that than there is i mean i was interested kind of in the visualization of them here though as well like to the extent that gender bending was sort of incorporated into the design of them as male characters because again i don't think it's completely coming off with the way um 
Wagner does it, but they're very pretty men, though. I mean, certainly with Kitty, with the, you know, the male presenting Kitty, who is, what is her name again? Dark Tiger. The swoopy hair. And on the cover, certainly, Nightcrawler is done very sort of young and pretty. Yeah. Well, I think Nightcrawler and I think Morgan, mm-hmm. um, on the cover, at least, are much more androgynous than either of them appears during the issue. Yeah. And I think that sort of leads a little more to the, um, I mean, it's, it's, this is 1990. Like the, the idea of non-binaryism isn't as big as it will be, you know, culturally, but certainly not in CCA approved comics, right? Yeah. Like it's, it, that's not something that I think is going to be pushed throughout this little dream sequence. Kurt reads as male to me. And yeah. I would not have bought that from the cover. From the cover, because Rachel is clearly supposed to, supposed to read as male, and Kitty is clearly supposed to read as male, and you know, Megan is a little covered, but like I can t- I can see the broader chin and the lack of boobs, and then Captain Britain clearly has them. So I think I switched Kurt in my mind from the cover to female, and that sort of le- bleeds through a little more in the book than I think what the book actually gives us. I think Kurt's a pretty man in general, right? Like. That's one of the Anna, you've talked a lot about that being his his appeal is, <laughs> you know, the liveness of him. And I and I think, you know, it's hard to say with Wagner not being a regular artist, you know, exactly where he would be mm-hmm. on that. So I think there's something there. I guess probably what I was getting at was sort of my memory of it was just that I do expect Nightcrawler to be it's going too far to call Nightcrawler like a gender fluid character. I think that there's elements of his embodiment that can lend themselves to that depending on how he's drawn and depicted is like I think the most generous thing I could say about that. I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, he's got a literally soft masculinity. He feels like velvet <laughs> like right. is what it is, right? <laughs> and I mean, we're going to see that come up in a later issue where like the girls are all going to point it are, out for are you. fawning <laughs> over him, right? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think I expected that to sort of come into it more, and then that was like a little bit confusing. But yeah, I don't know. But then we also have the callback to the Nigel Vixen thing, which, you know, we've talked about that so many times already, and I don't know that I have anything particularly interesting to say about it, but Andrew, go ahead. I just want to ask a question. Have we seen him shapeshift on his own before? That was a question I had as well. I don't think so. Okay, because he's always had to Nigel. Jamie oh, do that, uh-huh. right? Would you like to comment on the significance of that, Andrew? I don't think it's significant at all. I think it's an oversight (laughs) on Claremont's part. Because in the past, Jamie has to be there to shift Nigel. But we've talked a lot about sort of um, the queerness of those scenes. And I would argue not having Jamie there really does alter the fundamental mechanics and the metaphor and the symbols that we've already talked about. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if Nigel is gaining control over the ability to shift between presentations, that's significant. But again, hard to know whether that's intentional here or an oversight, right? I mean, I have a hard time believing it's an oversight since it is Claremont writing this comic and he is definitely taking... Taking, he's been taking Nigel on a journey this whole time, so surely it's yeah, got to be it deliberate. Is, but I don't remember it ever happening again. And spoilers: Claremont only has two issues. Left. I know, I know. So hard to say. So it's it's hard, it's it, I mean it's impossible to say, right? Because the resolution of that entire affair is not written by the same author. So who knows what was meant? The thing that I will just point out about this scene is that he's certainly falling into tropes of sort of duplicitous gender bending shapeshifter stuff, yes. um, even more so than. he has been before and i didn't love that about it you didn't love that about it well i no, i didn't particularly only because it's tropey in a way that there's at least been i feel like the last time that we had nigel when we talked about the real people issue and there was sort of some more interesting stuff going on there in terms of was he accepting or rejecting this embodiment of vixen in Mm -hmm. the particular way 
that Jamie dressed him and everything. And this was just sort of like a cackling evil thing of I've switched back to Nigel. They'll never find me. Ha ha ha. And I was like, eh, not like kind of as good. He's a throwaway serial villain here. Yeah. yeah. As, as is Vix, you know, Vixen, as is frankly Mesmero. <laughs> they're, all, they're all plot convenient, I think. Yeah, to tell this like kitty at the girls school storyline. I mean, can I come back to you, Charlotte, for like another question about it? We're trying to be so careful about sort of capturing the complexity of this here. But can I ask you a basic impossible question, which is that do you think that this is like an empowering narrative for Kitty as a character or not? And you can qualify that as much as you want. But even just subjectively, (laughs) like, how do you find it? Like, do you think it's like a good storyline for Kitty or not? I mean, that's a complicated one. I know it is. Um, because <laughs> I think that it potentially could be given more space. And like, I realize that this mm-hmm. is part one of three and that stuff is going to be happening. But even just the trajectory that we see here is quite compacted, right? And there are some there are some things that I was unclear on, like when in the scene where Kitty overhears Ms. Rutherford on the phone um, and there's sort of money troubles going on and everything seemed really duplicitous, I was fully expecting her to be like, you know, oh, shock, something is up. This woman clearly, you know, is deceiving me in some way. And instead she's just like, oh, poor Ms. Rutherford. And, and sort of all of the, the sketchiness around her being at the school and the school somehow inhibiting her powers like doesn't really seem to be projected back onto this authority figure in ways that puzzled me a little bit and that yeah. may or not may not be explained in, in the next couple of issues. Which is also really interesting, like given how Kitty reacts to being kissed by Ms. Rutherford suggests something potentially interesting, if very age differential troubling, about mm-hmm. the fact that she is so sympathetic to the plights of this woman. So there's there's something there that I think plays with the very sort of ambivalent and fluctuating ways that Kitty is represented both in text and visually, like that her her relative youth and relative maturity are sort of fluctuating here and that she's, I mean, the positive reading would be that she's playing with it a little bit. The less positive reading would be that it's sort of inconsistent or just sort of, yeah, I guess tropey in terms of how teenage girls are often represented in the genre. Well, I mean, would you say that it's fair to say that one of the problems that we run up against with it is like, is Kitty playing with this or is Kitty being played with? Like, I mean, both like within the story, but also like within the creators of the comic, right? Like, I mean, whose agency are we seeing here, right? Exactly. And that Mm -hmm. I think remains unresolved. And there are sort of some almost fourth wall breaking comments, like the whole comment after she's been doing the lines of like, this page is unacceptable. And it's like, haha, yes, I see it. Which is is never a tactic that I'm sort of willing to let comics get away with because that seems a little cheap to me, but but still, like, I see you. Okay. What I found really interesting, I think, most in terms of, of questions of agency is the scene of her playing hockey and the violence of that scene and the way that the panels get progressively smaller and tighter to ramp up tension and the fact that it it's never really sort of kitty directly impacting phoebe or the other way around it's always via the hockey sticks and the hockey ball and the way that that ball sort of becomes an object that we follow around that page as an extension of kitty's frustration and again it's as an object that is so violently solid in a way that she's perhaps turning her embodied solidity around and making it a force i'm always interested in when supergirls get to be violent because while it's always 
very complicated and often quite troubling, it's also sort of pushing our ideas and anxieties around girlhood to the limits, right? There is nothing as a culture that makes us more uncomfortable, perhaps, than the idea of the violent girl, the girl who hits first. And when that gets played with, I tend to think that that's very interesting. So I think that that scene had some potential, but then we get drawn out of it by the like creepy binoculars move by Sato Courtney, and then I'm confused again. Yeah, I mean, there is... Again, I can imagine a version of this scene that I would find more problematic than the one we have here. I think it could be sexualized oh, yeah. a lot more than it is. I think it's more just like, it reminds me of something that Gwen said in the Mojo Mayhem episode, where it's just... She said something about, you know, paraphrasing. It's just really hard reading comics as a woman, because you're just thinking about all these tropes all the time and I have such a heightened suspicion of like exploitation and sexualization in a scene like this in this genre in this space that it's like always hanging over my head because I actually really like the hockey scene I actually find it really badass I actually like it quite a bit I love that Kitty's face is dirty I love the determination on her face I even like the ripped clothes you know like there's a sexual component to that but at least it's like not ripping in the most obvious sexy places right you know I'll give it some credit there and I like those aspects of the scene I like that when she sneaks out she puts on the unitard with the pants whereas she's been forced to wear a skirt before i like all of these aspects of it really a lot but i mean again i think that's one of those cases where the gaze is subjective and like we're gonna make different things of the scene i mean andrew or mav did you have thoughts about the field hockey scene like did you like it did you hate it did you think it was productive i, I thought it was the best way to do what they need this storyline to do um phoebe can't fight kitty mm-hmm. kitty will kill her mm-hmm. like kitty will literally end her life if they <laughs> if they ever had an actual fight like kitty is a ninja trained by wolverine mm-hmm. the series goes out of a out of the way to sort of nerf kitty as much as possible in order to make the story work at all so in order to make this be a fair fight you have to do it through and i think i think it works i like i like that kitty has a nemesis that is just this is a regular human girl problem you know a 15 year old might have this problem with another 15 year old at school but also how how good is it that kitty's ultimate enemy is a regular 15 year old blonde girl (laughs) right it's just it's just i i love that you know this is not Kitty having a fight with one of the girls from one of the Hellions, right? Like one mm-hmm. of Emma Frost's girls or anything. This is just a girl who does not like you because you're the new kid. Mm-hmm. And I I like that. I like that she deals with it. The physicality of it works in that, you know, frankly, she should still be athletic enough that this isn't a real comp- contest, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to let it go because I think it works well enough. But I see everything that you're, I mean, like when you were talking about being suspicious of it as, you know, a woman reader which i am not i i get it because i'm familiar with the with the artist artwork i can see he's tempering himself but that's me bringing something right if you're not there i can see how you're like well you know it is kind of gazy and of course you know next issue is more so and then the last issue oh my god right so like (laughs) so it's not gonna it's you know they're doing a thing but how successful is it i don't know it's hard and it's just hard when we talk about it being gazy too because i mean it could be male gazy and I think there is like a lot of potential throughout this series for it to be queer gazy too. So like, I don't want to just say that gaziness is wrong. 
wrong because I think that there are productive no, no, spaces it, opened up here too. And I said on a previous uh, on a previous episode of ours, I think that we very frequently try to simplify Milky is bad, you know, yeah. and, and I, I don't think that's fair. But I also said on another previous episode, one of the things that delights me about Excalibur, comics in general, but Excalibur in particular, especially during this part of the run, the Claremont run issues of it, is there's a lot of what is Kitty? Kitty is what you need her to be. <laughs> you know, like as a reader, like Excalibur is a book that is about it's the group therapy for misfits. You know, that that's the premise of the entire book. I think when you're saying you see a lot of gazes build up into this, I think that's a feature, not a bug, right? Like that's mm -hmm. what makes this work is that, OK, well, for me, you know, for me, maybe I need the quirky outsider girl against the world. And if for you, you need the, you know, porny women in prison thing, that's that that's actually okay right <laughs> i mean i get why people might argue about it but it's actually it's good that it can sing to multiple groups can i ask as a, as a question about girlhood i mean charlotte would you say sort of the power and danger of sort of girlhood as a concept as it often plays out in sort of a mainstream text like this is that it has this instability that can be sort of used to like good and bad ends and like i'm being really simplistic here by saying like good and bad but is the flexibility and the instability and almost the many layered expectations of girlhood is that kind of both the power and danger of girlhood as a concept definitely yeah i think you could see it that way which of course is something that the superhero genre kind of dials up to 11 the fact that there are these sort of conflicting uh, sometimes even seemingly contradictory anxieties and aspirations bound up in imagining the girl child uh, or the teenage girl as a as a hero in particular and as a sort of active, agentic body that moves through spaces that are not safe for her, or even made mm -hmm. for her, right? That there are so many ways that that could go wrong, and so many ways that that can be empowering, and often those ways coexist. I guess, to me also, I think some kind of thing happens with the fact that we see so few female-coded superhero bodies in the opening of this comic, apart from the extremely exaggerated Captain Britain body, that it sort of almost resets. And I'm, I'm speaking here as someone who picked up this issue out of nothing, right? And, mm -hmm. and reading it continuously might change that completely. But like when, when Kitty's body appears on the pages, I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, she's there. She doesn't look uh, particularly young, but neither does she look particularly sexualized. Like, this is this is not as bad as I expected from a, a comic from before I was born. Um, <laughs> so, and I think especially seeing it in contrast to that, like, impossibly hard, impossibly shaped, weird femme Captain Britain body, it was like, oh, oh, this actually sort of vaguely looks like a person. Well, that's fine, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> which uh says yeah. more about my expectations than anything i think but i think that it does sort of put brackets around kitty as a female superhero and actually explores what does kitty as a teenage girl mean mm -hmm. and the depowering plays into that obviously but i think also the way that that she's drawn in the context that she's placed in and getting to be a not utterly unrealistic 
high school girl amongst other high school girls. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a question that we're going to be coming back to is sort of how the context of the girls' school can be a metaphor for, you know, the struggle of a female superhero in this genre in general, right? I mean, the ways that it opens up possibilities, but also restricts other possibilities, the way that it emphasizes vulnerability and yet allows her to have these moments of power. Because, I mean, obviously, Kitty's been to space. She's done all of these things. She's a ninja. She's like, you know, a superhero, (laughs) right? So winning a game of field hockey isn't a huge victory. And yet within the context of this space, given the ways that her powers are circumscribed, given the nature of the conflicts that she's presented with, it becomes a very heroic moment. So, I mean, it's just interesting the way this space, even through the tropiness of it, sort of, yeah, like smushes down, I'm getting super academic here, smushes down sort of all these multi-layered tropes of girlhood within the superhero genre or maybe genres in general and like allows us to play with them in some productive ways and some potentially uncomfortable ways and we're going to keep talking about those dynamics I'd imagine in our subsequent episodes just just to round out like it is super tropey don't get me wrong but I think like on on purpose on purpose for sure yeah exactly and that just as you say sets up this this moment of saying well what if Kitty were what you needed her to be what if she were not this character with all of this baggage and all of these things and where could this story possibly go from here what if she were really threatened by a bunch of non-super proud teenage girls reading her diary I think that's interesting in the very least Do we want to know or not want to know what Kitty wrote about Peter in her diary? I bet it's super PG and actually not very interesting. Depends on who's writing it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, We should probably think about wrapping up, unfortunately, but I'll do what I always do, which is to give everybody a chance to talk about anything that we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Mesmer at all. So if you have any interest in talking about him, now would be the time or any other final thoughts, that stuff that we didn't get to that you're desperate to talk about. I'll let Charlotte have the last word but Andrew or Mav if you've got something that you want to do for final thoughts go ahead for Mesmero I really really like the idea of a supervillain who is smart enough to figure out that he can actually make far more money just by going legit with the powers that he has (laughs) that's delightful because Every villain should have figured that out, and Mesmero is the one who does. I know, I did like that too. I like the I like the page at the end too. I love the little panel, like the first one of that sequence on the last page where he's sleeping just with the huge smile. I'm just like, oh, that's delightful. <laughs> I, I want him to succeed. He seems like he's having fun. Yeah. I, mean, I, I we have two more issues of him and you know i thought we'd talk way more about women in prison and this issue than we did so you know i guess there's something with it <laughs> i actually and, and and i should be i should be careful about that because i actually have a major soft spot in my heart for caged heat style films <laughs> and also well i mean i i alluded to it briefly but i have a very huge almost as much as i love i love comic books i i love teen exploitation film just like with with sheer delight so the next episode and the following one are going to have very serious overtones of that so that's more of a look forward to the next couple of weeks than yeah. anything specific with this one I'm, I'm, I'm like sort of doling this out slowly it's a three issue arc <laughs> Great. I don't I don't really have anything else. I mean, the one thing that is a little bit of a complaint, but I can almost justify it within the narrative, is that Kitty isn't as smart as she maybe could be at moments in the sense of... Oh, she's downright dumb yeah, sometimes. Because the story needs her to be, and I understand that. But I can... My way of justifying it is that she does get really obsessed with proving herself within the context of the school, and that makes her dumb. And because Kitty has an aggressive streak, I could almost buy that. 
that as smart as she is, she can be emotionally immature. And I can almost like sell myself on that reading. But one of the things that really doesn't work for me, and I think it gets to kind of questions of agency, and I don't think it's going to be improved in the subsequent two issues, is Kitty saying in Thought Bubbles that she's starting to enjoy the school and has the sympathy for Miss Rutherford, because we don't see any of that happening on panel. Yeah, but we also, like, there a week. <laughs> what is what is the proof of that either? Like, what things is she enjoying? We just have her statement that she's enjoying it, and the things that she's enjoying are profoundly unclear. And it's the one place that she doesn't have powers for reasons, because the story, it, it, I don't buy that either, and I, I don't have anything to say about it. I, I think it's, the story needs to keep her there, because clearly she can leave anytime she wants. She walks up to the end, and she's about to leave, and then she's like, no, I'll stay and help, because I'm a hero. So, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's, I think that's hand waviness. I don't think, I don't think it's interesting at all. I think, I, I think the story needs a convenient reason for Kitty to stay here in order for there to be a story. You know, why is she in school at all? Why hasn't she seen the newspaper to know that Excalibur, who's been saving people for the last four months, is in town? You know, why hasn't Courtney called her? Why hasn't she called Courtney? I mean, sure, you could say Saturday Night Live lying to her, but none of that's here. Kitty is just dumb in order to keep her here because we need this story to happen. Yeah, and that interferes with some of the questions of agency, which like is possibly mm-hmm. a problem. I mean, I was curious about her reaction to not having her power is because one of her fondest desires has been to get her solidity back and I wish that we'd had a little bit more introspection on what that means to her but and we're not really going to get that in future issues either. Charlotte, any final thoughts to, to round off our discussion of this issue? I mean, I, I agree that the a lot of how this is set up is contrived and, and I stand by what I said earlier that given more breathing space, Kitty's arc might have been more impactful here and I mean maybe Maybe that that is what the next two issues are. I'll just have to to listen along and find out, I guess. <laughs> I can send them to you also. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was interested in Anna and your sort of hesitation at Kurt not being gender swapped in that initial dream sequence because to me I actually I saw that and after the initial immense confusion was like, oh, so I guess that's because Kurt's gender is Kurt, yeah, that tracks. And I just yeah. sort of moved on and, and looked at all the, the interesting line work of that spread. I like that reading of it. Yeah, so I just I, I thought I'd, I'd throw that out there. It may be because I am under the, the heavily influence of your work as a PR manager, but I was just like, yeah, yeah, no, that works. <laughs> I know I'm kind of at this point in my PR manager career just trying not to be, I'm trying to temper sort of my fandom at points and like, because, you know, obviously I do want to <laughs> see Nightcrawler as sort of a gender fluid character, but I'm like also like, we got to step back and be like, he participates in misogynist fantasies and has inappropriate flirting and is definitely super masculine in problematic ways as well but that's definitely my preferred sort of version of him is to be a little bit more fluid so i appreciate that in a minute everybody i've got an announcement to make it's about sir well sir we'd all like to thank you very much for everything you've done for us and we'd like to give you a little present to remember us by come on babs you mean miss peg <laughs> babs go, go on, on. The time has come for closing books and long last looks, my dear. 
um, I guess we will do our wrap up. So Charlotte, thank you so, so much again for joining us. Um, before we go, we need to remind the listeners of your amazing work. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what projects of yours might you want to plug for our lovely listeners? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, for having me on. This is my, my first um, official appearance as, as Dr. Fabricius, and I can think of nothing more <laughs> fitting than uh, thoroughly geeking out about a comic that is older than me. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I am on Twitter at Charlotte J. Fab. That's the letter J and then the first three letters of my surname. Um, at the end there. I forget to tweet for long periods of time, but occasionally <laughs> I'm on there and I try to plug stuff when I do it uh, on there. If for whatever reason people who listen to the uh, episode with the fabulous Sam Langsdale did not immediately pick up Monstrous Women in Comics, let me remind you to do so. Uh, oh I have a chapter in there on uh, the Gail Simone Batgirl run and what that does with uh, issues of ableism and embodiment um, and it is overall a really fantastic collection so I would encourage everyone to pick that up. Also my uh, my article on Nightwing and whatever the hell that whole run was uh, <laughs> is out and is open access in the journal Academic Quarter so that is uh, the title of that is Precarious Lines. So that is a thing that people can check out uh, for free if they want. Also, if I might be the only person who listens to this podcast who also speaks Danish, but if there are other Danish speakers out there, I was recently a guest on the Danish podcast Supersnack, uh, in which I gave a, a deep dive into my dissertation research. So if you understand Danish, that's that's out there. And I guess that's that's the final thing for now. <laughs> and m many more things in the wings, I know. Um, we will link all of that stuff on Twitter in the show notes. And thank you so much again, Charlotte, for joining us. Thank you. It's it's been uh, it's been wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna get wilder because next in one week's time we'll be on to episode thirty-four, discussing Excalibur number thirty-three, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which doesn't star Elizabeth Taylor but does feature Kurt in a speedo and Kitty being a ninja. So there's gonna be lots to love with another super exciting guest. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrea and Mav, for another studious conversation. Thank you, Charlotte, for making us all sound smarter. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. That's it.